Well, hey there, Land Trust members, and welcome to our third episode of Learning the Land, where we talk about the working and wild lands we strive to protect in this amazing place we call home. I'm your host, Laura Danelle Schickman, and we're welcoming back our natural resource manager, Matthew Timmer, to continue our conversation about working lands. Today we'll be talking about conservation grazing, a practice we use on a few of our properties, but for uniquely different reasons. Welcome back to the podcast, Matt, and thank you again for lending us your expertise. Thank you, Laura. Glad to be here. So let's start right with the term conservation grazing. Uh, I'm loosely familiar with cattle grazing in general, particularly with cow and calf operations, but not with conservation grazing as a practice. So conservation grazing is the intentional use of domesticated livestock to maintain and increase biodiversity of natural systems. And this is typically used in grassland systems. Okay, and and why are the lands we graze considered working lands? That's a great question, Laura. If you go back to the last podcast episode that we talked about working lands in general, we described those as lands that are used for the production of, of something for human consumption. So when we use cattle on our ranches to maintain the, the habitat and so on, um, these cattle are used, they're, they're beef cattle. So by that nature, they're, they're extractive and they're utilized for that purpose. So what are the different types of cattle operations used within the practice of conservation grazing? So the two types of cattle operations that I'm familiar with and that uh, we deal with here at the Land Trust are cow-calf operations. And so these are operations that have cows who are impregnated by bulls that are of a, a certain desired genetic stock. And those cows give birth they, to calves and a subset of those calves are retained, typically the females. And by doing that, when they become of age, they will be bred. So the herd is theoretically enlarged over time. And uh, another subset of the calves, typically the, the males are sold off at auction and they will be, uh, become stocker cattle and um, raised for, for beef. For food production. The other type of operation that we deal with are is called a stalker operation and I kind of just referred to that. These operations are where yearling cattle, so cattle that are born that year are weaned and brought to properties to pasture and to essentially fatten up um, for beef production. So the difference between these two operations is that a stalker operation is typically seasonal in nature. So the the cattle are only on the property from December, January into the summer, and then they're all pulled off and shipped out. And there was no grazing for the remainder of the year. Uh, Cow-calf operations typically are year-round operations. And so the cattle might be moved from, you know, amongst different pastures, but in general, they um, are resident to the property. Got it. Are there benefits to using one type of operation over another on a certain property? You know, it it really depends what your goals are um, for the management of the property. The advantages of a cow-calf operation are the stability of, of the operation. It's, it's, the cattle are always present. You can shift them around. But the, the disadvantages are the size of the property is uh, essential. Um, you know, a minimum property to support a cow-calf operation is, you know, many acres. So in some cases where very small properties, 10, 12, 20 acres are, are needed, uh, or grazing is needed on those properties, they're almost, they're too small to support a cow-calf operation. So in that case, you could bring in stockers for a short period and, uh, you know, get the service that they they provide. Got it. And are cattle the only animals used in conservation grazing or are there others? 
Uh, there are others that, you know, I, in my definition of conservation grazing, I intentionally, you know, use the term livestock because other an animals other than cattle can be used. Um, that those are the only uh, livestock that we use on our properties. But Star Creek Ranch, for instance, had a very large herd of goats that lived on the property prior to our acquisition. And uh, sheep are also used. Before the cattle were used at Glenwood, um, there was a, a herd of horses that were there for a couple decades. And uh, I suppose you could even use chickens if you wanted to on a, on a small scale. Wow, I hadn't thought about chickens before. Um, that's, that's awesome. Uh, so I guess my next question kind of segues here is uh, how is conservation grazing different per se than like mowing regularly or, um, or or doing, I guess, kind of the same thing by hand? Well, there's definitely some overlap between grazing and mowing. Uh, both minimize the height of the vegetation, but they are different. Um, grazing in a, you know, system where grazers are on the property the nutrients are cycled differently um, as you can imagine <laughs> um, when you mow a property obviously that those grass or, or vegetation clippings also fall down and, and decompose over time but it's it's a slower process and it's more spread uh, across the landscape as opposed to concentrated um, there's also the the difference between the uh, impact of the hoof action of the cattle, uh, if, if you were using cattle, or I guess the scratching if it's chickens. <laughs> um, specific to hoof action, the cat, like cattle can be used for uh, invasive plant control, for instance, and by concentrating cattle in an area where there are, there's a heavy infestation of invasive plants, yeah, maybe they don't even eat the invasive plant but they they trample it so <clears throat> there's some benefit to that there's also research going into the uh, increased storage of carbon in soils and some of that <clears throat> has to do excuse me by the the hoof action of the cattle pounding the vegetative material into the ground that's awesome uh, it's definitely some unintended or I don't say unintended consequences but some ramifications there that I hadn't thought of that are that sound very positive um so I guess my next question is in what situations is conservation grazing used and by whom so we use conservation grazing as a, a technique or a tool for habitat management um, specific to endangered species habitat so we do conservation grazing at the Glenwood Open Space Preserve in Scotts Valley. And there we have locally rare and endangered plant species on the property. We also have a, an endangered invertebrate species called the Ohlone tiger beetle and uh, also Oppler's longhorn moth. And these uh, plants and animals benefit from, from grazing. And then we also see conservation grazing done on other properties that, that we don't own. Um, examples of those are Arana Gulch, the Moore Creek Preserve, and these are properties that are owned and managed by the city of Santa Cruz. And uh, if you go up the, the peninsula into San Mateo County and in Santa Clara County, uh, the Mid-Peninsula Open Space Preserve does a, a, grazes a fair number of acreage uh, for habitat management on their properties. Well, that's that's really cool. It's a it's nice to see that it's a practice being utilized by other agencies. So, focusing in a, a bit more specifically on how on how we use conservation grazing, um, you had mentioned that the way we use it at Glenwood is to help with uh, an endangered species on the property. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more uh, about the ways it particularly helps those species and perhaps even how we, we go about creating a grazing plan um, to, to include the needs of, say, the Ohlone tiger beetle. 
Sure. So at, at the Glenwood Preserve, we use cattle grazing uh, currently, and that, like I said, that was uh, changed over from horses in, I think it was 2012. And um, a little bit of background here, the, uh, the portion of the Glenwood Open Space Preserve that we graze is uh, the, the grassland um, and oak savanna uh, habitats. Um, these are coastal, like kind of remnant coastal prairie systems that have some residual native grasses and plants. Um, there was a introduction of, or there have been introductions of non-native grasses and, and forbs from the old world, from Eurasia, uh, hundreds, couple hundred years ago, with the, starting with the Spanish. And these annual grasses that aren't native grow up really fast and tall, and they outcompete the, the native plants um, if they're not managed. So the, the idea behind grazing at Glenwood is that the cattle graze these grasses down and open up space for the forbs um, and the native plants to survive and succeed. Uh, with respect to the Ohlone tiger beetle, this is a, a beetle species that inhabits these coastal prairie systems. They are preferential to kind of sparsely vegetated areas um, that have some, some bare ground component to them for their egg lane and their, their larvae to survive. So the cattle grazing we do at Glenwood is, is pretty intensive in the, in the area where the beetles uh, occupy at the preserve in that we graze it down pretty heavily to kind of maintain these, these bare ground areas for the benefit of the Ohlone tiger beetle. That's fascinating. Um, how, how do you uh, monitor kind of the, the success of the grazing? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, what we do at the Glenwood Preserve is uh, we survey for the rare plants and animals at uh, appropriate times of year. So just beginning last month, I started doing surveys for the Ohlone tiger beetle. Uh, this is the time of year where when the adults emerge, so they uh, undergo metamorphosis and um, become adults, they hatch out, they're alive for a very short time, only a few weeks, and they mate and lay eggs and start the, the life cycle over again. So I just walk through this, what we call the beetle pasture, and um, count the, the number of adults that I see um, on this these transect surveys that I do. That's awesome. And and how, how has the tiger beetle population responded so far? It's been very good. The tiger beetle has been monitored at Glenwood Open Space Preserve since 2000 since the year 2001. So we have this really strong data set um, of 21 years. And like I said, there was horse grazing up until 2012. There may have been 2014. And then the switch over to cattle. And we've seen a general increase in the population since the introduction of cattle. And um, it could also be that we're figuring out how to do it better. And we, we move the animals in and out of this, these pastures and um, certainly getting it dialed in, I believe. Um, with rare plants, we do several surveys in the springtime during the flowering period and document their numbers and population expansion or contraction um, from previous years. And with that knowledge, we can adjust the grazing prescription to, to favor the conditions for those plants. Very cool. And, and what type of operation do we use at Glenwood? So typically, the, the operation we have there is a cow-calf operation. And I said earlier that those operations are typically resident. Uh, that hasn't been the case recently. Uh, we've had some dry years and the, the amount of forage on the property by the late fall has been uh, minimal. So 
the cattle operator has removed his cattle and brought them to other pasture for a few months, and then he'll bring them back uh, in the in the winter time. Um, this year, we actually have a little different system in that uh, he brought in uh, some steers, which are castrated males that are uh, about a year old, and they uh, they come in at about six seven hundred pounds. So they're they're kind of on the smaller side. They're only they're like about a year old, um, and then they will stay until you know August or whenever the conditions um, allow, and then they'll go uh, off to different pasture. Well, it's great that the cattle operator was able to find another way to keep grazing cattle on Glenwood. Uh, honestly, I hadn't thought about how our drier weather patterns uh, could be affecting grazing land overall. So I'd love to shift gears slightly and talk for a moment about our newest property, Rocks Ranch. I know we're still very much in the early stages of of evaluating the property and um, creating its land management plan and whatnot. Uh, So I'll try and be really general with my questions. But I'm curious, how might conservation grazing be used at a property like Rocks, which is so much bigger than, say, a property like Glenwood? Yeah, it is uh, much larger. So I think the Glenwood... Preserve has about 120 grazable acres, and Rocks Ranch is 2,600 uh, over 2,600 acres. So it's roughly 10 times the size. So you know that's uh, much larger, but these things are scalable too. So um, you know larger stocking rates and so on. Um, Rocks Ranch, I've, I've kind of avoided talking about it to the until you asked. I've been focusing on the Glenwood Preserve because we've had this operation there to to benefit the beetles and the, the rare plants, and we have it pretty well dialed in um, for the most part. Whereas at Rocks Ranch, we just acquired this property last year, so we're still in this this phase of figuring out what we have there. Uh, with respect to natural resources. And so this year we are exploring and doing a full assessment of the property. And the information that we gather will inform our management plan. And part of that management plan will, or a large, uh, probably a majority of that plan will describe what type of uh, cattle grazing we'll do on the property. So when I look at the property, I see the potential for several special status. And when I say special status, I mean plants or animals that are listed as endangered or threatened on the federal or state list or are on a special animals list that the state holds. I see potential of several special status species um, being present on the site. Uh, Those are the California red-legged frog, which is a federally threatened species and uh, California species of special concern. There's potential of California tiger salamander, which is uh, another amphibian species that has a similar life history to the the red-legged frog um, and is federally threatened and state threatened. And hopefully, I'm hoping we have uh, burrowing owls and uh, grasshopper sparrows and maybe nesting golden eagles and, and other special status bird species. Awesome. Um, yeah, I know I, I didn't want to ask too many specific questions about rocks, but I was just curious because I know it's just it's such a different um, type of beast, so to speak, for using conservation grazing as, as, as opposed to how we have been using it. So what we'll do is we'll use grazing as a cost-effective approach to achieve our our management goals, which are to be defined in this management plan that we're putting together. And some of the goals that we've been kicking around are to sustain and increase native biodiversity. So grazing could support that. Um, Supporting working lands is another goal for Rocks Ranch, um, including leveraging relationships with grazing operators to build support for land protection, other land protection projects. Um, 
supporting healthy communities is another goal for Rocks Ranch. And that includes uh, the production of healthy food, for instance. So grazing is going to be a, a major theme in this plan. And we're also looking at all of the infrastructure on the property that exists. So Rocks Ranch is currently uh, hosts a stock, uh, stalker operation. So currently there are several hundred head of cattle out there that will be there until uh, approximately June when they'll be shipped off. And there are fences and gates and water troughs and all the other associated infrastructure. And so we'll be looking at fence lines, pastures, and really doing a deep dive and figuring out, okay, do we have any of these rare or endangered species on the property? And if so, how can we graze this property with biodiversity and support these rare wildlife um, or plant species? And so in conservation grazing, you typically break up a property into pastures or you have these special resource or management areas and they're typically pastures because that's what you, how you can contain the animals. And so we'll have special resource areas or management areas and then we'll have these flexible use fields. So these, these are pastures that maybe don't have as high of a concentration of rare plants or they don't have the special status wildlife species in them. And so by having these special management areas adjacent to these flexible use fields, you can then move the cattle in and out using those flexible use fields to get the, the right grazing prescription that you want. Does that make sense, Laura? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Rotating cattle between different types of pasture makes total sense, especially if we're establishing the ideal grazing balance uh, on, on a property. Yeah, and you might even have an area that's called a sacrifice area that has really no sensitive uh, endangered plants or animals or wetlands or anything so that you could theoretically, during a drought year, let's say, you have a hundred cattle on the property and the forage is dwindling <laughs> and you have to put them somewhere because um, you don't want to impact your your special resources so you'd literally put them in this area where you you could supplement their feed with hay or whatever but they're going to impact that area greater so you want to make sure you have this kind of backup plan so as to you know not mess up your special management areas so it it sounds like having a good relationship with a cattle operator is important. And so I was wondering if you could talk more about um, the partnerships that go into uh, utilizing conservation grazing as, as, as one of our practices. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the partnerships are, are essential um, to these operations being successful. So we have the, the cattle operator and we have the landowner who is us. Um, and then we have, uh, we hire a rangeland scientist to help, help with the, the management plan and the implementation of the plan. And it just provides some overall um, advice. And the rangeland scientist also does periodic monitoring, typically in the spring and the fall. Um, and they'll monitor the, the, rain, the conditions. Um, of the pastures, so they, the herbaceous height and, and mass and um, different things to kind of dial in the grazing. And so this, these relationships are, are really essential. Um, you know, the operator has to be, has to buy into what we're trying to do. <laughs> we have to be understanding of uh, his or her operation and the, the economics of it. And, you know, the rangeland scientist is sort of in the middle, kind of advising both of us, listening to both of us and what our needs are. And so it's this really neat team in the case of Glenwood uh, that has this, these goals in mind and um, sets about trying to achieve them. So in, in this specific case of the Glenwood Preserve, uh, the, the three of us, the operator, the rangeland scientist and I are in this kind of constant conversation while the cattle 
are present, and even when they're not there. And we just have this text thread where this, we send these group texts, and we send pictures, and ask questions, and advise, and you know, ask to move cattle, or open gates, or close gates, and um, it works really well. That sounds like an amazing team. And the geek in me is just like what I would give to be on that thread. If I could add one one more important relationship. Yeah, yeah, of course. That is uh, the relationship of uh, the neighbor with the neighbors. Um, I'm, f- I'm finding that's a, a really essential relationship to nurture as well. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is, um, you know, the Glenwood Preserve has many, many neighbors because it's in this sort of suburban setting. But even in a, a rural setting like Rocks Ranch, where there are fewer neighbors because they're large properties, having those eyes on your property, on the fence lines, on you know fire and and all these other elements is super helpful absolutely it's something i hadn't considered but yeah having you know people around who can say hey this looks like the cows are getting out so to speak (laughs) and they do the the cattle are prone to drift um especially in these stalker operations the these one-year-old cattle are they're like teenagers and they sometimes get a little rowdy and look for ways to get out and uh it it helps to have good neighbors who are who are watching out and i can definitely see why (laughs) rowdy cow teenagers i really love that description So I can clearly see the benefits conservation grazing has for us, but how about for our cattle operator partners? Are there enough benefits in this relationship to outweigh potential challenges? Well, I think that using conservation grazing in general by land trusts and other private landowners, by introducing grazing onto properties that haven't been grazed in the past, it increases the amount of pasture for operators. So that's that's a win for them for sure. Um, but there are also there are also downsides. Um, some of the properties that require this type of grazing are like I said pretty small, um, 10, 20 acres. And so it's expensive to trailer cattle to and from preserves for short periods of time. So it's logistically challenging. And uh, that's something that should be taken into account by the, the landowner. And, uh, you know, maybe that's, uh, you know, a price, or price break or, um, you know, maybe even payment for their fuel or, or whatever to, to make the operation work. Got it. That makes sense that it would be needed to incentivize in certain scenarios for sure. So I'm not too familiar with the number of operations we have close by. Are there local cattle operators that we partner with, or do we have to reach out to people outside of our area? There are not very many small cattle operators in the area. Uh, so that, that's really, that poses a challenge for conservation organizations like ours who are trying to do conservation grazing on our properties. Um, I'm only aware of a few, uh, and they're... Um, I would call them hobby <laughs> operators. Um, it's pretty tough to make a living, as I understand it, doing uh, running cattle. And so these, the people that I'm thinking of are, are really in it, in the business for um, just the experience and the lifestyle more than for the, uh, the income. Um, I think they enjoy that connection with the animals. I think they like the husbandry part of it. I think they like the connection with the land and the lifestyle suits them. But it's very difficult to make money um, using this, you know, in small time operations. That's really rough. Is there a particular reason smaller operations are so challenging? Yeah, I again, I think the one of the limitations is access to land. And so you know that's that's probably the biggest driver um 
there are families who have in, in the Santa Cruz um, County area that have been doing it for generations. And, uh, you know, sometimes those continue on and, and sometimes the, the younger generation kind of gets tired of it and, and moves on to other things. So, um, yeah, understandably it's a, it's a lot of work. And as you pointed out, uh, not necessarily a huge income generator. So that's, it's tough. So my next question is, how does having cattle on the property affect wildlife? And certainly we've talked about how it benefits certain wildlife, like the Ohlone tiger beetle. But I guess my question is, what are the other potential ecosystem impacts? Yeah, Laura, that's a great question. And one that should be taken seriously. We're always considering what impacts um, whatever management practice we, we employ has, um, on the system. So, um, if you had too many cattle or were grazing at too high of an intensity for too long, uh, that could definitely lead to soil erosion on the land. Um, grazing could also lead to stream bank erosion or water quality issues. Um, if poorly planned, but many of these impacts are or can be mitigated with good planning. So bringing the cattle, you know, into an area at the appropriate time of year or keeping them out of areas during certain times of the year. These good uh, practices are, you know, made better by good fencing and infrastructure uh, and so on. So the done rightly the the effects of cattle grazing are are minimized and um, i don't think that cattle grazing has any real direct impacts on wildlife Um, i would frequently see coyotes (laughs) lounging on the tops of the hills at glenwood preserve or bobcats cruising around you know and the cattle just kind of go about their thing. So I haven't seen too many conflicts between wildlife and cattle. Awesome. Now, is this one of those things where once a once a land is grazed, it does need to be grazed in kind of perpetuity or? That's kind of what I, that's the sense I get. Um, you know, it's disputed. You know, people talk about, you know, long, long time ago, thousands of years ago and you know, large herds of, of uh, herbivores and, and so on. I, I don't know what, uh, what was true or not. Um, we probably had elk here on the central coast at some point in time, whether they formed big herds and, um, and so on. I, I don't think we ever had bison out here. Um, there's no evidence of that. But something maintained these these grassland systems. And we know that the, the Native Americans regularly burned them um, for their own purposes. So, you know, fire was definitely a, a factor there, but they've also been, they've been grazed for, for hundreds of years uh, since the, the Spanish brought cattle. And, you know, Part of it is they're not pristine systems, and we have all these introduced annual grasses, and so it seems like the best way to manage these grasslands is using using livestock and grazing them. And uh, we see the the highest biodiversity in these systems. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think if you pulled grazing off a property, you'd have to implement some kind of surrogate for grazing in order to maintain it in its current state, you know, to maintain that biodiversity, uh, like I was saying. So you could continue to mow it, and that would probably work for a while. Um, You could use fire, prescribed fire, potentially to manage a property. But I think you'd have to do something because what would be left behind would be a a vacuum and nature abhors a vacuum (laughs) and 
invasive plants love uh, a vacuum. So, um, yeah, so that's why we kind of uh, roll with the, the grazing thing, um, especially where it's already in place, like Rock's Ranch. Uh, we have no intention to pull grazing off that property. Um, it was acquired for um, for its wildlife, you know, its proximity to this wildlife corridor and crossing from the Santa Cruz Mountains to the, the Gabalon Range. So, um, you know, that's the, the purpose or the focus of that property. But proper management, um, we, as we see it, includes um, grazing on that property. And we want to... We want to take that grazing and and maximize its positive impacts. And so that's what we're going to be dialing in over the next few years. So what would it look like if we pulled grazing off of a property? Yeah, you can see some of that at the Watsonville Slough Farm. Uh, that used to have cattle grazing on it in the, I believe, uh, up till the mid... 20th century so uh, there's still some infrastructure there some barbed wire fence lines and so on but uh, the, the grazing was replaced with row crop and the portions of the ranch that aren't in row crop production are ruderal and uh, have in some cases just become uh, massive stands of poison hemlock and other weeds. So, um, you know, we've been doing some restoration projects that are trying to restore these to, to native grasslands. We have not brought cattle to that ranch, back to that ranch. Um, that's kind of a complicated issue with the, with the farming operations there, but um, we're trying to manage those using other tools like, like mowing and or even looking into using fire out there at some point to manage the native grasslands that we've restored. And then Star Creek Ranch was also grazed heavily by uh, a herd of several hundred or maybe up to 500 goats uh, by the previous owner. And uh, I, I kind of see the same thing there. Um, there's minimal grassland there. I think on the 1200 acre ranch there might be maybe 120 acres at most of grassland so really not a lot of opportunity to you know run cattle or livestock there but in in those areas they pretty much just become um, you know ruderal kind of weedy areas which aren't necessarily bad Um, you know there's that's forage and cover for birds and, and other animals. And that ranch is uh, primarily held by the land trust for the purpose of wildlife movement and wildlife um, corridors. So it is what it is. It's, it's wild and feral and, and uh, that's just fine for that ranch. Got it. Yeah. Each property has its different needs. Yeah. We tried to get cattle, a cattle operation in there uh, for a couple years, and the cattle operator uh, gave up after uh, a couple years of trying it because it's so rugged. Uh, he was losing cattle uh, both into the brush or uh, having difficulty tracking them, but also I think he was losing calves to uh, <laughs> mountain lion predation as well. So. Um, his comment to me was when I asked if he maybe would want to consider coming back (laughs) was it just wasn't a good return on investment. It just (laughs) was not working out for him. So, um, you know, we'll see, we'll keep, keep probing. There are some pretty neat little pocket meadows up there and it would be nice to, to use cattle periodically to, uh, you know, graze those down and, and, uh, benefit those systems but it's been a challenge thus far for sure Uh, so do we receive revenue from leasing the land out for grazing ah good question um we yes and no (laughs) um 
So at the Glenwoods Open Space Preserve, we uh, have arrived at the point where because we ask the operator, we ask so much of them, um, we have a significantly reduced rate uh, that they pay, uh, almost nothing. It's a very kind of difficult arrangement for an operator to graze such a relatively small property and you know be expected to maintain fence lines and um, troughs and other infrastructure and then also you know move the cattle kind of on demand um, so we have kind of a good arrangement there we do not make any money on it in fact you know if we add our our staff time we pay for pay a lot or, or lose money um, fortunately that is um, funded by an endowment that was set up when the Glenwood Open Space Preserve was established and so it goes you know directly into the the management costs there um, at Rocks Ranch that's uh, currently in a more conventional operation um, we do charge uh, the cattle operator for having his cattle on the property and it's kind of interesting the the cattle in this case the cattle are weighed when they arrive and they they're weighed when they leave and the the operator pays us on the weight gain um, after they've been there for uh, five or six months so it's kind of fascinating in that way but that is. yeah, so it, it does generate some income, um, not a lot. In fact, it probably barely covers the the maintenance of the the fence lines and the troughs and watering systems, and uh, invasive plants and so on. But in general, any income that is generated by working lands um, support land trust programs and it's directly leveraged to advance conservation. So we typically take the, the income that's generated on a certain property and, and use it on that property. Uh, we talked about timber harvesting at Star Creek. Um, that would be a good case where, um, you know, a periodic harvest every 12 years generates income to manage the property for the next 12 years until you do another harvest. Um, and, and similar at Rocks Ranch, the, the income generated generally gets put back into the property. We will, I'm sure we'll be doing habitat enhancement projects on the stock ponds, uh, you know, other, other things. So um, it's really cool to work for an organization that has these super long, kind of long, long-term um, management goals I mean we we manage these properties forever like in perpetuity so we we have these like really long relationships and um, commitments to stewarding these properties so it's cool that we have some uh, income to be able to put back in and and really do do them well um, manage right for the resource i like to say i like that that's a great phrase and you know this is a great segue to to one question i've had because we've, we've touched on all these different pieces of what goes into a, a land management plan um and i'm just wondering if you can describe kind of like or tackle head on what what the process is. I mean, so conservation grazing is clearly a tool in the toolkit, but like when we get a property like rocks, like what do we do? Like how that we to create the plan that's going to last the next hundred years. Right. Well, the, I think it's, it should be stated that we'll, we definitely put together a plan and we're in that process right now. And we're in the kind of fact finding phase of that. Uh, we generally give ourselves about a year to put together a management plan for a property. And that can be done in different ways. Um, you can hire experts to do surveys. Um, you can do some of the work in-house potentially. Um, for Rocks Ranch, we've 
assembled a team of some some staff people and then some outsiders with expertise in different areas botany rangeland management infrastructure cattle infrastructure wildlife and um you know access kind of stuff and we'll gather you know as much knowledge of the property and write this plan and um i think it's important to to understand that that plan directs management of the property but it can be adjusted at any point in time right so um, in the sciences we call that adaptive management so uh, you don't have to nail it and get it absolutely right uh, the first time um, that management plan can be you know flex flexible enough or should be flexible enough to be able to adapt to you know things that are unforeseen absolutely i can definitely imagine a plan uh that that it can shift and, and adapt would be critical yeah because we could five years down the road find some super rare plant that we didn't find this year because we only had six months to look for it in one bloom season so or maybe there's we do some uh prescribed burn out there and that elicits some kind of response um or you know plants show up that we weren't aware of or, or things shift um so you know you want to try to anticipate as much as you can um and so like at, at rocks ranch we want to think about the rare plants and animals we want to think about the watersheds we want to think about shrub encroachment coyote brush encroachment into grasslands you know we want to think about all these things but um, understanding we're not going to nail it and it, it may look different in uh, 20 years or 30 years as we learn the property more so as we get ready to wrap up i want to circle back for a moment um what i feel like has been a, a constant theme through both of our podcasts uh, whether timber harvesting or, or cattle grazing. And that's really the critical nature I'm seeing of our partnerships with the people who who do the work, who are felling our trees or, or grazing our land. Um, I'm wondering if you can share something that you think our listeners should, should maybe be aware of and, and why it's so important for us to work with and support these people, and, and in this case, our local cattle operators. Yeah, the relationships are are just so important similar like you said to to the timber um, work that we do you know I, I've realized how hard it is for these cattle operators to to make any money <laughs> doing what they're doing and have realized that um, a lot of them are just doing it for the love of it and uh, they really provide a, a, a huge service uh, ecosystem service and I think they really need to feel appreciated and I think they need to be supported you know there's there's not a lot of grazing land in Santa Cruz County so it's a pretty small small community and uh, I think if if we walk away if, if we were to just say oh grazing is bad <laughs> we don't want to do it because the, the cattle mud mud muddy up the water and that's bad for the whole system or whatever. I, I think it would be a real shame. Um, I think we would lose a lot of biodiversity in the region. Our grasslands are some of the most biodiverse systems that we have and it's essential to uh, have livestock grazing in these systems. Um, and we also want to support them and offer opportunities for them to protect their land in other ways through potentially through uh, conservation easements and you know other other things like that so uh, similar to what we do with with farmland i don't see this any different this is uh, just a different form of of agriculture so um, i think these collaborative relationships are are super important for what we're trying to do as as the land trust in preserving open space and uh, 
you know, ways of life that have existed here for a long time. Matt, I, I think that's just so awesome. Um, as someone who personally has ranching in their family history, I have some definite nostalgia around that way of life. And I love that we're partnering with people locally uh, as a way to support it. That's very cool. I never knew that about you, Laura. My kids uh, and I will sit around the, and my wife, and we'll sit around and uh, the, the dining room table. And, uh, you know, I, I manage forests and I manage rangeland and, um, you know, wetlands and, you know, all these different habitats, right? And we say, okay, would you rather be a logger or would you rather be a, you know, cattle rancher? Or <laughs> and uh, it's funny to hear the kids' answers to that. And I, I think um, my answer would be a cattle rancher. I have an affinity for those kind of more open landscapes and um, really like the working with with animals in, in particular it's, it's super fun absolutely i'm i would answer the same <laughs> for sure um so matt i can't thank you enough for joining us today it's continues to be so exciting to pull back the curtain and share information about the benefits of our working lands and, and our land management practices well thank you for having me I would like to say thank you to a few people who have really taught me a lot in the last couple of years about rangeland and about conservation grazing. And those people are Larry Ford, who is uh, a rangeland scientist um, and very knowledgeable person in this field. Uh, I've learned a lot from my supervisor, Brian Largay and um, also from the operators that I've dealt with, including uh, Peter Suski, who has been grazing Glenwood since uh, 2014. Um, so if any of our members have questions, is it, who should they reach out to? I'm happy to take any questions. Uh, feel free to email me at matthew.timmer at landtrustsantacruz.org. Happy to answer any questions people have about these topics. Amazing. Thanks again, Matt. You bet. Thank you, Laura. Well, Land Trust members, thank you again for tuning in. And if you're just joining us for the first time, this is part two in a three-part series about our working lands. Uh, I hope you'll give our previous episode on timber harvesting a listen and tune in next time when we discuss our third type of working lands, farmland in the Pajaro Valley. Thanks again, and until then, happy trails.